So I'm here talking with Tyler Mahan Co. Tyler is the creator of my favorite podcast, the critically acclaimed Cocaine and Rhinestones. He's also the co-host of Your Favorite Band Sucks. Uh, Tyler recently signed a book deal with Simon & Schuster, and his Twitter feed, at Tyler Mahan Co., is absolutely a must-follow. And I'd kind of like to start talking about uh, your Twitter, if that's okay. Are you familiar with the movie uh, Casino, by any chance? The mob movie Casino? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I've seen it several times, yeah. Yeah, so there's this, um, there's one scene, and, and sometimes this always kind of reminds me of uh, of your Twitter where it's a, it's a guy, he goes in, he robs a mafia bar, he shoots it up, kills a bunch of people, uh, a waitress, and the Joe Pesci character says, now there's a guy just begging to be made an example of. Um, and, you know, sometimes when I, I see some of your quote tweets, um, I, I think of you as the Joe Pesci character because he ends up like popping his eyeball out. Uh, so I've, I've always, I've always kind of found that, that funny, that, um, that, that's what pops into my head when I see some of your quote tweets. Um, here are a few, uh, a few examples that I really enjoyed this one. I got to tell you, man, it cracked me up. I hope you have as much fun, uh, tweeting as I do uh, reading your tweets. Uh, this one that I just, I jotted down. Um, I already went through the, uh, I already went through this, uh, with another unremarkable version of you. I thought that was that was a fantastic one. Oh yeah, I try to save it for people who uh, seem like they have it coming, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you, that's what I'm saying. You you for sure do, and like you can sometimes you can tell when you see somebody's reply. That's what I was talking about in that Pesci scene when he says, "Now there's a guy just begging to be made an example of," and it's usually when somebody comes at you with like you know uh, something totally crazy or like where you've discussed it already, and they're like, "No, you're you're wrong." Um, but it's, it's just fantastic. Um, and of course, in, uh, all of your tweets are great. I hope people, uh, follow your Twitter cause I just have so much fun with it. Uh, another one I wrote in, uh, I know it's hard to believe I can tweet this much while making two podcasts and being this good looking, but believe it, motherfucker, you're looking at the process. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so that's just, I, I just wanted to tell you, um, the, you know, and for anybody uh, who's going to be out there listening to this, your Twitter is is a absolute must follow. I mean, do you do you enjoy it? Like, do you like the back and forth, even when it gets you know with the nasty people? Well, yeah. So a lot of people don't like my Twitter, uh, famously. Um, but I am consistently surprised at how often uh, people on Twitter who don't really get it seem to believe that I am taking all of it much more seriously than I, I am. But on my end, I'm laughing about most things I tweet. I mean, unless I am obviously pissed off about some political thing that I'm talking about. If I'm talking about music, who gives a shit? You know, it's music. And that's kind of one of the reasons that um, Mark and I started Your Favorite Band Sucks is... Uh, it, it was a direct response to Donald Trump becoming the president, you know, and uh, just the way that he ran <clears throat> his campaign uh, on social media specifically, you know, he he gamed the algorithm in a better way than every other politician at the time. And he did that by making people angry. And it feeds into this... Um, 
division that seems to be growing worse almost exponentially on a weekly basis right now. And so Mark and I were talking about that. And we're just like, well, it's so ridiculous because now if you disagree about anything with someone, then they have a laundry list of personality traits that they automatically assign to you, you know? Like if someone cuts you off in traffic, oh, this guy must have fucking voted for Hillary. You like that? It's 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 instant, you know, just like snap judgments that if someone does one thing that you don't like, then that means everything that they do is in the things you dislike category. And so we were talking about just how inconsequential most of the things that people get pissed off at each other about are. And one of them was just taste of music. Like, why would anyone care what someone else sits down and listens to? It has nothing to do with you. And well, and conversely, uh, one of the first five questions that people ask on first dates, you know, is like, what kind of music do you listen to? As if that is a filter that means this person is not about to ruin your entire life, you know? Like, oh, if you listen to the same music that I do, then you're probably not going to fuck my best friend or, you know, <laughs> kill my pet or burn my house down. It's just, it's wild. So anyways, the the idea was we'll do this show and obviously it'll make a lot of people mad, but the longer it goes on, the more obvious it will be that it has to be a joke and further than a joke illustrating the point that it is possible for you to hate your best friend's favorite band, but still just go hang out and not talk about music or like not care what your best friend's terrible favorite band is. So yeah, it's, I guess that what I'm saying since this started about my Twitter is it's all kind of one thing for me and something that I think a lot of people also don't realize about my Twitter is that I'm working when I'm, saying d dumb shit on Twitter. Like, A, it's promotion, you know? I don't think that, uh, like, I didn't have nearly as big of a following when I started making podcasts, but I had a decent base following from already acting like this on Twitter before I was doing podcasts, you know? So um, I think that that definitely helped me just switch over to having an audience that listen to a podcast and uh yeah i've most of the people who don't get it and are upset about it don't seem like people i would really want to hang out with to say the least you know yeah no it's it's crazy i remember um the guy this is a musician uh that i, I was talking to um and uh, your name came up uh, as you know as it often does uh especially when you're talking about you know talking with you know country music people and he said, yeah, Tyler Manco. He said, you know, I, I block him all the time and then I unblock him and then I block him all the time. And, <laughs> and, 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 and to me, I was a little baffled. But also, I mean, what to me, that's also kind of a great compliment to you, right? It's like I, I can't stand yeah. what he said so bad that I'm going to block him. But then I, I have to go back to see what he says next. Yeah, another pretty influential thing for me was uh, my father actually took me to see Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie. Um, I was definitely way too young to have been taken to see that movie, but if your parent takes you, then it's fine. And uh, there is a part that I remember in that movie where they're discussing his ratings, like how popular he is. And 
there's, there's some significant percentage of that audience is just people who hate him so much that they have to keep listening to it to see what he's going to say next. Um, and and that, that sort of informed a uh, part of season one, the Bobby Gentry episode, when I was talking about what it means to be a celebrity and the role that celebrities serve in society. You know, you need a hero, you need an enemy. And celebrities fulfill that role for us. I'm certainly not trying to be thought of as a celebrity, but I am comfortable with uh, playing the bad guy. I'm fine with being the villain. And if you ask any actor if they'd rather play the hero or the villain, all the good ones are going to pick the villain, you know? Yeah. And it, it reminds me too, I don't know if you're a, a pro wrestling guy at all, but you know, it's uh, for sure. When I was a kid, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of, you, you play that heel so well. Um, and it's, it, it's really great. And I, one thing too, that I wanted to say, um, kind of going back to, uh, where you were talking about, uh, you know, Trump and changing the, uh, uh, the algorithm or using the algorithm, uh, algorithm to that advantage. Another thing that I've noticed kind of in this era, um, and you seem to, to call this out, um, I, I would guess on an above average, uh, basis, um, it, there's a certain kind of, a certain, a certain kind of certainty now, if, if that makes it like, not only do people have um, opinions or, or things like it's, it's like whatever my opinion is today is absolutely 100 percent correct. And there's absolutely nothing that you can say uh, that that will change. my. There's no evidence that you could present that would change my mind. Um, and, uh, do you kind of experience some of that, too, with kind of the, the people that you're interacting with on, on Twitter and, and otherwise? Rarely. Uh, generally, if someone has taken the time to listen to like a whole episode on whatever topic that I'm doing, then, and also I'm not always trying to like definitively lay down the law. You know, I'll, I will present reviews and, you know, if there's a, if the, the biggest thing that happened in season two, I think, well, there were two things really was, um, I kind of had to rewrite, uh, basically a whole chapter in every book that's ever been written about the history of country music, about the Nashville sound and sort of a lot of people, uh, interpreted that as basically I hate Chet Atkins, uh, which was not, was not the point. Um, I definitely complimented Chet Atkins for everything that he deserved to be complimented for. But the facts are that he does not deserve credit for a lot of the things that he, um, does still get credit for because of some errors in the earliest but most influential books ever written on country music. And then another one was the whole, uh, did Johnny Paycheck influence George Jones thing? And so those are two instances where I am coming at the listener hard with evidence, but I only do that when there is evidence. So typically if I'm getting you know, harassed by someone who wants to say that Jones got it all from Johnny Paycheck. It's someone who heard about my show, but didn't actually confront it head on. You know, they didn't actually go expose themselves to the argument. So, um, yeah, because if anyone did have 
evidence that debunked something that I had stated and it proved that I was incorrect, I would issue a correction because I'm not a fucking narcissist who needs to be right about everything. It's my intention to get the truth out there, you know? Yeah, for sure. You know, it does seem like sometimes though, when I, when I see, um, when I see some people interact with you on social media, um, they, they, I kind of see like a determination to kind of, um, I don't want to say preach at you. It, it feels like they, they want to, uh, they want to show that they're right and you're wrong. You know what I mean? It's like, if you say, you know, this band is it, there was a, oh, what was the one? And this is going to be terrible because you're going to think, you know, how much time does this guy spend reading my Twitter feed? Uh, and it's, it's a lot, but they were, you were talking about Ticketmaster. And somebody kept oh, yeah. coming back with, with Green Day and Green Day and Green Day. And you ended up having to post like the Rolling Stone uh, <laughs> magazine cover. It's like sometimes yeah. people will just dig their heels in and be like, you you are wrong and I am right. And it's, it's uh, to me, it's like you said, it's uh, it's funny, but it's kind of interesting kind of that, uh, you know, now that kind of people are on social media um, a lot. It's, you know, I, I, I tend to question pretty much everything. There's just it's, it feels to me like the level of certainty uh, that people have, particularly in opinions rather than, than facts. I, I find that kind of interesting. Yeah, I so I uh, have a Patreon and I film update posts once a month. And then I also I reviewed that George and Tammy TV show. So when I make videos like that, I'm sitting in my office in front of this bookshelf that is like double layered stacked with books about music, like all kinds of music and music history and things. And I don't know if people think that that's just like a, like a prop, like the, uh, <laughs> Ty, like, like Ty Lopez standing in front of a, a bookshelf full of books that he doesn't actually read. But like, I read those books, you know, and if I'm talking, if I get on Twitter and I'm like, uh, nearly everyone misunderstands entirely what happened between Pearl Jam and Ticketmaster. And then I start talking about what happened. It's cause I, no, it's not because I'm just like, I'm, I didn't just decide this, you know, like I read about it a lot. Um, Mark and I actually uh, recorded a episode on Ticketmaster that we're going to come back with when, when you, your favorite band sucks is on a break right now. But every now and then we do like serious music business episodes and uh, we've just had it with the Ticketmaster conversation, you know, every people, it's just the concert industry is so complicated like lawyers buy mansions because of how complicated the concert industry is so even if you have a journalist if they haven't worked in concerts and they're just talking to one part one piece of the industry or talking to someone who has a vested interest in you know perhaps misrepresenting things it's just really easy to get a f false narrative out there. And it's kind of what Ticketmaster's entire business model has been built on. But it's really annoying to watch all these artists grandstand uh, when you know the reality of the situation. And when I say artists, I don't mean like American Aquarium level artists. I mean like, you know, Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And just to kind of talk about um, Ticketmaster a little bit, um, 
a couple of things there. I started to remember, and you said something um, that that really uh, struck out at me um, because I, I'm I remember my first uh, Ticketmaster quote unquote controversy. Uh, I'm I'm almost fifty, so I was I came in still during the latter end of the Ticketron era. Um, and then, okay, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and, and then a Ticketmaster hit, um, at least my area. And, you know, I was one of the guys who would go and, you know, get in line at, you know, 6 a.m. or whatever, uh, stand in line to get tickets, you know, the, the whole, uh, you know, nostalgia trip, which has a lot to do with this that we can, um, talk about in a minute. But, um, the, the first time I remember, um, kind of the a whole fuck Ticketmaster kind of mantra, was they started a lottery system where it didn't matter what time you showed up in the morning to get your tickets. Uh, they they came out, everybody drew numbers, and you know the person who got there five minutes ago may get the first seat. The person who sat there for three hours, uh, you know, may be last. Um, and that that was my first kind of big quote unquote Ticketmaster sucks. Uh, scandal that I remember. And, you know, after that, it was, you know, fees and um, you talked about the Pearl Jam stuff, but um, kind of circling back to me, it, it, I think a lot, I think a lot of the reason that people feel like um, Ticketmaster, there's something nefarious about Ticketmaster is that how can some, how can a company that has been, you know, people have been saying Ticketmaster sucks for at least since the early nineties that I know of, uh, you know, how can that still be in business without something shady going on? And, and you had said something like, you know, that's, that's what they do. That is their business. Yeah. So if you could kind of expound on that a little bit, because that really kind of, I was like, Oh wow, that makes perfect sense when you said that. Well, yeah. So like I said, we did an episode, your favorite band sucks on it. So the, it's, it's a complicated issue. And the, the problems that exist there are actually actually hundreds of years old. It predates electric ticketing entirely. It, and um, it, it's Ticketmaster's, like, so TRS was the first one that really, like, got some traction and tried to make it work. And essentially the problem that they found was the problem that everyone found, which was that all of the quote-unquote problems with ticketing events uh, from the customer side, at least, were actually not problems for uh, promoters and venues because all of the things that customers hate about buying tickets uh, make a ton of money. Um, a lot of the promoters and venues are in on ticket scalping and are the reason why the best tickets for the most popular events were never included in the initial on sale. It's just, and, and it's the same thing that you see now with like Metallica got caught in the past few years. Um, not, not again, when I say Metallica, I don't mean the people in the band, but like one of their reps, um, which also I, I tend to hold major artists accountable for that too. Like, yeah, you're not the one doing it. You're not in the meeting, but you're responsible for what your people are doing. Um, so, but yeah, one of Metallica's people got caught uh, basically scalping Metallica tickets before they were ever even on sale to 
fans in the initial on sale. So it's a lot of that kind of thing. And the, the, the way that this situation got to where it is now is, um, yeah, it, it, you'll just have to wait for that episode to come out because it's it's good. I think I think a lot of people are going to uh, learn a lot of things. And um, another thing that happened recently, uh, which it happened after we recorded the episode, so I would, didn't get a chance to address it, but that uh, the Springsteen dynamic ticketing fiasco, which. Um, that's that's why Ticketmaster's job is to be the bad guy because when fans can tell that the artist is ultimately the reason for high ticket costs, which they can tell with the Springsteen thing because he was, I don't know if it, foolish is the right word, but he told, he gave Rolling Stone a quote, like there was a reporter who asked him, what about this dynamic pricing thing? And Springsteen straight up said some version of, yeah, so my whole career, I've made it a priority to t keep ticket prices low. I would tell my guys, hey, when you go to make the deal, don't get as much money as you can get. Don't do what everyone else is doing. You know, let's keep it reasonable. Let's keep the tour profitable, but prices, you know, in a reasonable area. And this time I told them, yeah, just go out and get all the money that you can get. And his reason was that it was, like the last tour with the E Street Band or whatever, but people don't care. Like people don't see it that way. Fans don't see it that way. They don't. If you went to every Bruce Springsteen fan and said, "Would you like to contribute to the E Street Band's retirement fund?" Almost none of them would do it. You know. So what he what he thought was a good explanation, ultimately served to just demonstrate to fans how it is the artist who makes ticket price is astronomical and I think that we're going to see more fans of more major artists come online and figure out what's going on here and I am certain that a lot of fans of pop stars in particular are not going to want to believe the truth. But there's a reason why at that Ticketmaster hearing, the only person there to represent artists was some guy in a band that you've never heard of. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I think too, um, you hit on something there. A lot of the, the Springsteen, uh, the Springsteen fans, I think after the first on sale happened, and it caused an uproar. I think what really kind of uh, popped everybody's balloon was that there was no uh, Bruce or whoever didn't come out after that and say, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't mean this. Uh, which, of course, means, you know, yeah, we meant this. Uh, you know, that, that was kind of revealing because, you know, there were multiple on sales that could have been stopped. My only truck with um, dynamic pricing um, is, is really that because I, I was in the, you know, in the, in the loop for Springsteen tickets. Um, when I was trying to use the system, um, and this was just an experience I had, I'm not saying that Ticketmaster did, you know, anything, whatever, just kind of my experience was I would, you know, Ticketmaster usually pair seats. So if you click one seat, it's going to give you the seat beside of it, and then you can remove that seat. Um, what it did in, in the, in the Springsteen on sale was, if you clicked 
the button, it would add two seats. By the time you got to check out, it would delete one of the seats. And you would move around, and that happened like three or four times. So I don't know if it was something there, – there's something weird in that system. And I think, too, even aside from that, I think it it smacks people of unfairness as well. Again, I'm not disagreeing with what you said. I think it's on the artist. Uh, you know, used to – there used to be a um, – back in the day, and then I want to talk about that for a second. You know, you would have kind of for a pavilion, you would have three levels of tickets. You would have a you know twenty dollar long, a forty dollar reserved, and then a sixty dollar gold circle. Uh, you kind of knew what you were getting, and that's kind of definitely with dynamic pricing that's out the window. But and again, like you, you know, it's a very complicated thing. Um, but it's just I, I think that's the thing. Like you said, it, it's it smacks of unfairness more than anything. Uh, nefarious and to me like i said dynamic pricing is probably the the really the only thing that i can complain about in as it opens up the the system to to things like that it, or it opens up allegations of you're gaming the system to clog traffic so that demand goes up so that price goes up if that makes any sense uh, yeah, if you, I don't know if you watched that Ticketmaster hearing, but um, the one of the people who knew what he was talking about uh, actually brought that up. That dynamic pricing: the slower the website goes, the more money Ticketmaster makes. You know, um, and yeah, I certainly don't know for a fact that that's what's happening, but uh, I do know what makes more money. Right? Yeah. No, exactly. So um, up the other thing I wanted to follow up to that in general, and you've uh, you talked about this too. This whether it goes to um, you know buying tickets or uh, kind of uh, subjectivity of music. You, you know, you've kind of talked about nostalgia. Uh, you know, the reason you like this song so much is because you heard it. You know, when you were twelve and your parents were getting a divorce. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, you know, nostalgia is, especially as I get older, uh, it, it gets so, so powerful. Um, and, you know, I didn't know this. Uh, I just happened to be looking at it some somewhere a while back that, you know, nostalgia used to be considered like a deadly mental illness. Um, yeah. And, yeah, for and sure. you know, it, it, it's like, it wasn't just like a, I wish I was a child. Like it was, it was killing people, especially soldiers, I think, in uh, World War One. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how much does that kind of drive, particularly as we get into, you know, cocaine and rhinestones and stuff that you had talked about, about how, you know, every generation uh, hates the new generation of music. Um, you know, how how much does nostalgia, is it nostalgia doing that as far as rather than just, you know, the quote-unquote quality of the music uh i think it's certainly more nostalgia than the quality of the music um but there's a lot of conversations uh that we could have right now that are all attached to this the i think that the biggest issue is that not as many humans are actually as big of fans of music as you would think from how ubiquitous it is in 
certainly in American society. Like you cannot go to the grocery store. You can't go to a bookstore. You can't really leave your house without hearing music. So it, you, it would stand to reason that, oh, everyone must really love music. I, I don't know that that is necessarily the case. Um, in my experience, like the people who I have known in my life who I would say love music are the people who will go spend three hours flipping through the racks in a record store, you know, like that, that to me, that is a music fan. And yeah, there are a lot of those, but it, that, it's not everyone, you know, it's certainly not as many people care about the Super Bowl or the World Series or the World Cup, you know. And so what you get is people who have music in their lives, but it's not, it's not the relationship that I have with music or that well, I would say serious music fans have with music. It's just sounds. And those sounds are associated with memories. You know, it, there have been so many studies that prove that most adults, nearly all adults will spend the rest of their lives listening to, if not the exact music that was popular amongst their friend group, whenever they, you know, hit puberty through college it's it's going to be music that sounds like that you know it's going to be something in that vein in that genre and there are not a lot of people who actually do listen to everything which is it's a thing that all kinds of people say you know oh i love all music which to me you might as well say you don't really give a shit about music if you say that because like that's that's not having bad taste. That's having no taste. If you like everything, you literally do not have discerning taste. So do you like it? Or is it just, do you, are you just afraid of silence? You know, do you just need there to be some noise happening or do you care about music? And I think that there are differences between those things. Um, so yeah, I, I think that nostalgia is, much more a driving force in certainly the history of uh, recorded music. And if you go before recorded music, you've got folk music, which is a entire medium of just playing the same songs over and over again for centuries, you know, and that that's nostalgia. You know, it's not like those were the best songs and it's not like they were bad songs either, but you know, just because they got played for centuries, it doesn't really mean that's not indicative of quality. That's indicative of the role that this thing served in society and for society. It it was there to be nostalgic. You know, you would learn it from your grandfather and you would teach it to your grandchildren. Another thing that I'm I'm remembering, I can't remember if if this is something I read somewhere, if it was something that. Um, that you would say, but talking about um, classic rock radio, you know, a lot of people say, you know, well, obviously X era of music is the best because they played it on classic rock radio for all these years. I think I read somewhere that the, the reason that is is because like, there were actually metrics. Like, there were certain songs that if you played at certain times would make people listen longer. Are you familiar with that or am I just making that up in my head somewhere? I haven't read that, but I one thing I would point out is that um, 
radio formats were sort of cemented in thanks to the Clear Channel era. You know, the I, I am constantly talking about the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Uh, I think that like nearly everything to do with certainly the recording industry uh, and what I would call a general decline in the quality of a lot of popular music, it's j it just goes back to the Telecommunications Act. So what, cla what classic rock meant in 1996 is sort of where it froze. Because like I, Nirvana songs are as old as classic rock songs were when they started being called classic rock. I don't hear a lot of people calling Nirvana classic rock. You know, it's just, it's sort of, that definition got frozen in time when so few corporate entities were able to control so many radio stations. And it, you just, you get rid of diversity at that point. It's, there's, it, everything just starts to look like everything else. Does uh, just kind of this uh, just cross my mind, like for, you know, now, um, I'm guessing iHeart is iHeart part of Clear Channel now. I'm not really sure. I think my main question well, they, is: are, they are Clear Channel. They just changed their name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, like, are, are there any other medium? Like, how is if if you know, um, has that changed any? Like, is you know, are other like satellite uh, the online stations? Which I think when I think of iHeart, I think of online, not radio. But of course, I guess that's. Uh, kind of the uh, the way it's supposed to be, but like, is there are there any inroads now outside of of that? Well, there's this idea that um, the internet is supposed to uh, you know level the playing field and sort of make it easier for independent artists to make a living, and there are you can find a lot of examples of that being the case you can find a lot of independent artists who are certainly able to use uh, streaming and social media in particular to their advantage but the issue with that is the volume of noise like it's just so hard to start from nothing and break through everyone trying it'd be like uh like I don't know trying to start an OnlyFans from scratch like you're just some attractive person and you don't really know anyone you don't have any ends and you just start an OnlyFans it's like okay well there are like thousands of other people trying to do this exact same thing as you and yeah you're cute and everything but no one's gonna find out about that because the the people who have an audience already have the audience and it's it, in the attention economy. It is a zero sum game. Like if someone is listening to one album, that means they're not listening to everything else. And which again, sort of goes back to the, I, I like everything uh, statement with like, you are making a choice. Every time you press play on something, you're making a choice to not listen to all other music, you know? So that, that's why I think having taste is important, but it's also what makes it so difficult for um, truly independent artists to make their way into 
that playing field. And then the other issue is that uh, Spotify really hasn't changed much about the situation. I mean, it, they it's just a delivery thing. It's, it's basically radio on demand, but they don't want to call it that because it's fancier to act like you're this, you know, amazing, mind-blowing new technology. Um, and then they, they have to get in bed with the record labels. So it's still the record labels, you know, and Spotify has tried to uh, get around that. You know, they got, I believe they got caught sort of making up fake artists to just put to see if they could get away with just putting fake music in there in the playlist and stuff. And then once you start talking about playlists, you're right back to the payola conversation that you have to have when you're talking about the history of radio. They, those playlists, they like, I can't remember what they call it now, but it's basically just payola. You, you know the right person, you give them the right amount of money and you get on the right playlist. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really not that different. Now, what I would say is, so I don't, um, drive. I just take cars everywhere. It's actually cheaper if you live in a big city to just not own a car. And so I, I hear radio in cars when I'm taking cars and uh, a lot of the stations are iHeart, which is clear channel and every commercial break, they are, constantly pushing their podcast products and they're trying to get you to download the iHeart app. And like you said, that's what you think of when you think of iHeart is internet. And that's because they are terrified of inevitable technological change that is coming. And they are trying to move as much of the terrestrial radio audience as they can over to um, internet audience. And the reason why, and this is already starting to happen, they're like Wi-Fi connectivity is becoming standard in cars. So that's a thing which makes it much easier for if there's like a family on a road trip, instead of everyone listening to the radio station, instead of everything else, you have the kids in the back each have headphones on and they are doing their own things. So one car in advertising speak, one car goes from being a group impression on one product to individual impressions. Like you can have four people in a car experiencing four different things. And then if, uh, if self-driving ever happens, then even the driver can be watching a movie, you know, and uh, that's gonna be a pretty devastating progression for terrestrial radio to deal with like why would you listen to a wacky morning radio dj when you can watch anything on netflix instead you know yeah no that that makes perfect sense i do feel like wh wherever it's going to go I, I think a lot about um you know when i was a kid the the uh, bmg and columbia house record clubs uh, oh, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I had, a, I had that, that's kind of a thing that I, that I wish somebody would make a documentary on, um, because I, I kind of tie that back to, and the reason I bring that up is it feels to me like whatever happens with the new thing, um, artists are still going to probably get fucked. Um, because I, I remember, um, I'd started to write something, 
uh, a documentary or something, a treatment about, you know, uh, how I learned to, to steal music. And of course, you know, those, those record clubs, you know, my brother and I, you know, we had, uh, parents and step parents and grandparents and step grandparents. Uh, you know, most people kind of talk about the negative option of billing and stuff like that. Uh, the, they consider it a scam on that end to, for the record clubs. Uh, but still, you know, we would, we would get great deals, man. I mean, you could, you could go, you get uh, 12 records for some stuff and some change. You buy a couple of overpriced records and you cancel. Then six months later, they're like, come back. And I remember somebody was, uh, I don't know if I read it somewhere or had a conversation with somebody, but they were, um, they weren't licensing a lot of this stuff. Like they had, I'm pretty sure like they had their own presses and things where they would, they would press their own material and uh, they would, they had deals with labels, but not with the artists. So like anything pressed at the Columbia house label, the label would get its cut, but the artist wouldn't get anything. It didn't count. So it's just kind of, that's just kind of a, a weird kind of uh, something that swims around in my mind all the time. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with those clubs or anything uh, at all, but I, I do wish, I, I do wish somebody would make a, a, a podcast or a documentary about that. Cause I feel like there's, uh, there's a tone there that maybe, maybe even leads into the streaming area uh, or uh, the streaming era because, you know, again, if you're if you're you're kind of taught at that point or conditioned at that point to, hey, 12 uh, CDs for a penny, it, you know, there's a kind of mental devaluation factor there. But that, that's I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I do remember getting um, some CDs from one of those, probably the Columbia House one back in the day. And uh, it's. It is always frustrating when you hear the record labels doing something scummy and it's, I, I get really frustrated with the record labels, man, especially now, Like, and this kind of ties into everything that we've been talking about, actually. Uh, so the, the issue with dynamic pricing tickets that people don't like is at the end of the day, what that says is... Um, rich people get better seats, you know? And if you're not rich, go fuck yourself. So I hate that, obviously. Um, it, one of the unintended negative consequences of making Cocaine and Rhinestones is every now and then I'll talk about an album that is out of print and then all of a sudden you can't buy that album anymore for, you know, less than $300. And I hate that. Like I didn't start talking about that album because I thought you should have to spend $300 to listen to it. And um, I have, I am currently trying to uh, work with labels to like get reissues of some of these things out there. And it's just so difficult to get them to do anything because it, they just don't have to, you know, they don't have to take risks. They, they can just make money on their catalog. And then the other thing that's happening with music right now that I think is just gonna have a lot of really bad consequences is the 
you know, every month or so you'll see some article about some legacy artist selling their whole publishing catalog for a hundred million dollars or some shit. Um, and Mark and I, and your favorite band sucks. We did an episode about this. Actually, it, the episode was called RIP music. And, um, one of the biggest companies is called hypnosis. It's exactly the same as the, uh, design firm storm thurgerson's design firm probably did several of your favorite album covers and in fact the guy who started hypnosis went to storm and asked storm to design the logo for hypnosis and i've got to think that storm was uh wise to the same things that i see about this company because the logo that he designed was a dead elephant uh, <laughs> which is just like, um, I, I got to imagine that he was sort of making a play on, uh, elephants never forget. Well, they do if you kill them. Um, yeah. because the only way for that company or any of these companies who are paying tons of money to acquire these catalogs, the only way for them to see a return on that is for those songs to start earning even more money than they're earning right now by being licensed in movies and commercials and whatever else. So what that means is we now have basically a almost a hedge fund of music like a it's it's almost like a black rock of music out here and th with they can legally manipulate the market so to speak like they will now throw all of their resources behind ensuring that this music is the music that stays popular forever you know for as long as they exist and again what that means is anyone who is participating in viewing that watching all of the biopics that they're going to have made about the same era of artists and everything else is going to happen those people are choosing to not spend that time engaging with something new because they don't care because it doesn't remind them of when they learned how to come yeah that, that and that that you said hedge fund of music uh, it, it puts into my mind there's a i think i see advertisements for all the time um, it's these, uh, they're paintings, you know, Warhols, whatever. And like you can, for like a certain amount of money, you can like buy in to that painting. Uh, so like, you know, there may be 50 people who own this Warhol and they hold it like it's a stock and they can sell their shares and stuff like that. So, um, you know, maybe it's going to be, you know, even something kind of weird like that. Yeah, I, I got 10% of Springsteen. Uh, I got 5% of, uh, of Dylan. And, you know, again, it's like you just said, at, at that point, the, the people who can afford to do that can afford to um, to affect change in, in the market, to manipulate the market. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I don't know, man. It's like... It, Everyone, and not to be all doom and gloom about it, you know, because, you know, every generation, because of the nostalgia thing, every generation thinks popular music is ruined and it's it's all going to hell in a handbasket and blah, 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 blah. I, I think that, that it's kind of different 
now, though, with, again, the Telecommunications Act and that allowing so much consolidation to happen and the internet, like the, the internet sort of is crystallizing a lot of these systems into place. And I, I don't know how that gets changed. Like, I don't, I don't know how, aside from everyone for the first time in the history of humanity deciding that they're going to give a huge shit and dedicate a ton of time to supporting independent artists and never letting uh, their own music taste crystallize and always keeping an open mind and trying to find new things, if that somehow happens. But otherwise, I think people will just take what they're handed. And it really looks like uh, most of the people in a position to do most of the handing are kind of going all in on just a very specific window of time, which they have decided is and will remain the most profitable window of time in recorded music. So I guess just get ready for a lot of the same stuff, in, at least as far as mainstream culture goes. Yeah, stairway to heaven all day long. Exactly, yeah. So um, I do want to, uh, I, I want to get into uh, cocaine and rhinestones here. Um, where we've uh, talked about it a lot and I, I don't want to, um, take up too much of your time, but, you know, I don't have to tell you, I've, I've told you before, uh, cocaine and rhinestones from the, from the very moment that I, that I heard the first episode, uh, I, it's one of those kind of, it's one of those things where it almost kind of changes your day. It's like when you see, when, when I first saw Pulp Fiction. I thought, okay, well, this is something, this is why, this is something totally, you know, unique and, you know, a different way of doing things. It's one of those things that once you kind of, once you get what it is, you're like, okay, this is, this has changed things here. Um, And and that's kind of the way that I I felt about uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones. I was like, this, this project is something, there, there was me before I heard this podcast and there's me after um, and, you know, I mean that, uh, as a compliment, of course, but, um, I do want to, uh, I do think, I, and I think about it now in this way, because I'd mentioned to you that, um, that I've been trying to get, and I had him scheduled a couple times, um, Eric Foner, uh, the reconstruction, post-Civil War reconstruction historian on the show and, uh, ended up missing him. Uh, but one of the reasons that I, that I even brought that name up to you is, you know, he is the guy on post-Civil Reconstruction. Like, you know, he wrote the book on it. He is the expert on it. Um, and I'm kind of wondering, and I, I know for sure a lot of people look at you um, already after just two seasons of Cocaine and Rhinestones as the, or one of the foremost authorities on 20th century country music. And I just kind of want to unpack that a little bit of, um, do you how do you feel uh, in that role if you feel you are in that role? And do you look at this as kind of your kind of defining legacy or do you look at it as something as, OK, I'm going to wrap this up and then do something else? Uh, I can't see myself ever. De- well, first of all, thank you. I, I can't see myself ever deciding to stop. Uh, it really is. Um, it, I think it's very important thing 
to do. I think it's very worth the time and effort that it takes to do. It's all, it's all kind of one thing, what I think is something that a lot of people, uh, could easily miss, you know, like, oh, how can this guy do cooking and rhinestones and be the same guy who does your favorite band sucks? To me, it's all part of one thing. And it's sort of everything that we've been talking about. Like if uh, my idea was, well, first of all, the cooking and rhinestones exists because I wanted to listen to it and it didn't exist already. You know, like I want, I've got into podcasts after years of not being into podcasts and you know, found that the ones I liked the most were the ones where someone sat down and decided to spend some time working on a story that they then relate to you. It's a lot better than the ones where people are just sitting around talking. And I assumed that there must be one about all these stories that I know about country music, you know, and there were not. And so then it sort of just became a matter of figuring out the format of it, which... I don't, I, I guess I kind of went in a direction that is unexpected as far as the way that I decided to bring people in with the intros of each episode. But um, again, it's all part of one thing. And the, the strategy there is how do I get, because I knew that country people were going to love it, you know, because like, I, I knew I was going to love it. Like you, they say when you write something that you should imagine your ideal audience member and write to that person. I don't have to try very hard to do that because it's me. I'm writing for me. And it, like I'm writing the show that I wanted to listen to. And I knew that other people who were like me would like it as much as I would like it. So that wasn't really uh, something that I felt I had to work very hard to do on top of what I was already going to, the work I was already going to do for the show. But as far as like other people, that's sort of where the intros came in. How do I get someone who thinks they could not give less of a fuck about country music? How do I grab their attention? And how do I show them that country music does not exist over here in this segregated bubble that has nothing to do with the world that you're living in? It is of the world that you're living in. It is a product of the world that you're living in and a reflection of the world that you're living in. So here's how this thing that you may find interesting actually is relevant to country music. So, and that, if you can get someone who had previously written off an entire genre to open up to the, all of country music history, then you have solved the problem that we've been talking about. You have solved the issue of I decided what music I liked when I was 23 and I don't care about country music. Well, if you break down that wall, then you now have them hopefully, maybe, asking what else is out there and trying to find more things. Um, and then specifically uh, to your point about me becoming the foremost authority on country music, I uh, did not in tend for that to be the case. I do take it as a compliment, but um, I'm also a student of history. And one thing I am very aware of is that future generations get better at doing things and there, someone else is going to come along and they're going to be they're going to get to have grown up listening to cocaine and rhinestones. I had to spend my whole life inside country music and then also read just a ton of books in order to be able to do this. But 
right now there's a 16 year old kid who can just press play on it, you know, and get the benefit of what has taken me my entire life to do. So that's where it, it will ultimately end up. So, I mean, even if I am seen as the country music guy right now, that's just a temporary state of affairs, you know? It, but, do, but do you at all see uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones as um, canonical, as is, as in, you know, this is going to be a a historical work, you know, wh- whether things may be changed later, do you, kind, do you consider it in that way? Do you treat it in that way as you go into it? Yeah. I would like it to hold up for, you know, 50 years, 100 years. I, I hope that it is still being listened to and enjoyed. And, you know, now that it's going to be books, read and used as a as research material. Um, it's sort of the unspoken theme of the show is fact checking the previously written history of country music. So it's sort of... Um, I want it to be, you know, I want it to be entertaining and I want it to be educational, but also one of the incentives for doing it, one of my motives for doing it is sort of to issue corrections, you know, like with the Nashville sound thing in season two, like that had to happen. Someone had to do it and, you know, not to, not to disrespect all of the people who have written books on country music. There've been some great books about country music, some terrible books about country music. It's not like I, you know, hate everyone who went to print with this misunderstood notion of the Nashville sound. I understand how it happened. The first serious books about country music made a, had a mistake in them. And there's a very good reason, a very obvious reason for why that mistake happened. And Anyone who then comes along and wants to write a book and uses that those books as reference materials because they're the only ones there, they're going to duplicate the mistake. And that's the way things happen. But it, it was just clearly incorrect, you know, for someone who did spend their whole life in this genre it's, it's just a lifetime of reading books and thinking, well, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. You know? And, and I didn't like, and I was, and, and this is a, a thing that country music fans know. Like, this is what we talk about. We stand around and talk about, did you read that book? Did you see what that dude wrote? It's bullshit, huh? So it, there was part of me when I started working on Cocaine and Rhinestones that dreaded the idea of, assembling thoughts on the topic of country music and then releasing them to the public. Cause you might as well just paint a target on your chest and go outside and, you know, yell Johnny cash sucks, you know, which I also like, if you're going to go that far, you might as well just go ahead and do that. You know, because you're going to, no matter what you say on the topic of country music, you are going to piss off a lot of people because so many people have so many different ideas about what, you're even talking about when you say country music. You know, you say country music to most people, they do think Johnny Cash. You say country music to me, Johnny Cash isn't in the top 10 people that I think of first, you know? Yeah, and then of course you have the, uh, you know, on the on the other end of the spectrum or probably, the, or on the spectrum or, you know, Garth Brooks isn't country. 
uh, you know, that's, that's not real country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. So, um, I want to go into, uh, I think the last, the last time you and I talked uh, about the podcast, um, it was early in season one. Um, and I had thought, I remember thinking at the time that the Tom T hall episode, uh, in season one, that that would be a hundred percent my favorite, uh, because love Tom T hall, you know, I have kind of a, uh, a weird personal story. I don't know if I've told you, but I've probably posted it on Twitter a thousand times where I wrote, I wrote him a letter back in, I don't know, the mid two thousands. And he wrote me back and he called me a, a good writer. And that's my, my prized possession. Uh, but one of the guys in season one who I had no idea who he was, that I totally fell in love with uh, was a guy named Don Rich. Uh, I had no idea who Don Rich was, and now I can't hear Buck Owens without hearing him. Um, do you have just you know any kind of details or, or thoughts about Don Rich you'd like to share? Because I, I hope people will really um, check this guy out because t- to me, uh, he was a behind the scenes guy, but but not you know like he was he was crucial to to the whole Buck Owens experience. Uh, yeah, fully agree. I mean, I, Buck Owens had his sound and it would have been, you know, pretty close to what it ended up being. But Don Rich came along and Buck was able to sort of just hand off a whole part of what was previously Buck's job, like playing guitar, just hand that over to Don. And then Don took it further, you know, and because he wasn't the front man. So he was able to fully devote himself to just progressing as a musician, which Buck Owens could not fully do because he had to be the face and sing, you know, and, but, and not to discount Don as a singer too. I put that version of, um, the night they drove old Dixie down. I put an excerpt of that in that episode because I think it's phenomenal and everyone should hear it. And I mean, I would really, I'd probably press play on that before pressing play on the band version of the song, to be perfectly frank. And yeah, I just, and then also Don brought so much personality to what could otherwise have been a, you know, background role, just someone back there playing guitar. But he was always just, you know, doing goofy shit, making funny faces, getting other dudes in the band to laugh. And uh, yeah, kind of a, we should all be so lucky as to have a uh, Don Rich in our lives. I don't think I could honestly say that I do. So I can't imagine what it would be like to just have a a right hand person who is that awesome. Yeah, for sure. The uh, the other guy I kind of want to uh, mention uh, from season one, and then we'll uh, run through a little George Jones, and uh, I'll cut you loose. Um, I'd never, honestly, I thought that Floyd Kramer was somebody that like only I and five other people knew. Um, and which Floyd was actually season two. I don't know why I said season one, um, but when you played, uh, when you did the National A Team episode. Um, I, I had this memory, uh, talk about nostalgia. I flash back to, uh, to my aunt's house back in the late eighties, early nineties, my cousin, John, uh, he was the musician of the family. And, um, 
he used to play the organ and his mom and the family would always ask him to play Floyd Kramer. And he had nine fingers and he would play it. And I remember when he did it, that there was something almost magical that he was doing with his hands. I had no idea what it was, but it just sounded, you know, different. Uh, and it just sounded great, but it was, it was a different kind of sound that I'd ever heard. Um, and then I ended up listening to Floyd Kramer later. So it was really exciting to me to hear the name Floyd Kramer and to discover that uh, I didn't discover Floyd Kramer. Apparently, he's probably one of the uh, one of the all time greats. So that that really tickled me to be like, oh, I thought this was just a guy that like 10 people knew. Yeah, no, he's definitely uh, one of the most influential <laughs> pianists of all time. Uh, you said something a second ago that made me um, want to clarify something. We've been talking a lot about nostalgia, and I am aware that uh, it, it might sound strange to hear a person who makes a whole podcast about the history of country music sort of criticizing nostalgia. Um, but, but so the thing about this project for me is it's not about let's stay in the past let's look at the past and let's only do things the way that they were done in the past it's sort of to it's sort of to overturn i guess cliched notions of quote-unquote tradition within country music because it's, it's all bullshit like i i guess for anyone who hasn't actually listened to cooking the rhinestones what one of the things that happens throughout is sort of overturning many of the notions that people have about country music and kind of in a new way, I think, like sort of for the first time having someone talk about country music in these specific terms, like with this much honesty and objectivity. And it's not like a rose-colored glasses situation. And it is more about proving how this tradition was always an evolving thing and it's meant to evolve and it's good that it evolved. And people who disagree with that are genuinely not music fans. And it's more about identity for those kinds of people. You know, a lot of the Garth Brooks sucks dudes just want to listen to the 10 year window of what country music means to them. And they, act like that's the way that it's supposed to be and that's all they'll do for the rest of their lives you know and i that ideology is sort of my enemy i guess uh yes i you know i get it and that's that that was the biggest <clears throat> excuse me thing for me about the podcast was um if you had you know if you had asked me before i'd heard cocaine and rhinestones or if anybody had asked me i would say I know a great deal about country music. Uh, you know, more than, I, I know a lot about it. Um, and, you know, once I started listening, I was like, you know, holy shit. I, I, I don't I don't know anything. Um, you know, I think that's what I meant when I said it kind of uh, kind of changed, uh, changed kind of the fiber of my DNA a little bit. It was like um, it, it, it was a whole new I'd, I had already thought that I knew everything there was to know. Uh, and then I realized I didn't know shit. And, and to me, that was a, a great, great thing. 
You know what I mean? And I think that's kind of what you're alluding. I hope everybody takes it that way, or I, I don't know if you do, but that, that's what it kind of was to me. Well, do I mean, I can tell you, I could tell you that doing this project does the same thing to me all the time. Like I went into season two thinking that I was going to be explaining to people how George Jones was influenced by Johnny Paycheck as a singer because I thought that because I had been told that and the information that I had been presented, the way that it was presented to me seemed to make it pretty clear that that was the case. But then I went and, you know, investigated it and looked at all of the data and the recordings and everything that we have now and the dates that those things happen and everything. And I was just like, oh, that's not what happened at fucking all. <laughs> and and I, I mean, I said that in the liner notes of that episode, but yeah, it, it, I guess the point is like doing this constantly shows me how much I don't know and how much what I thought was true is not actually true. I think, and I think that it's healthy to do that I, because generally what you find is people, people believe things that make for a good story, you know, and, and this is a problem that, uh, I consistently have with Hollywood attempts to make movies about major musical artists is they feel like they need to change things to make the story better. Cause no one's interested in just the true story, you know, but my thing is, well, usually if you get, take all the bullshit and get rid of that, well then how did it really happen? And that's probably interesting, right? And then you look into how it really happened and you're just like, this is great. There's no reason to come up with all of these fantasy versions and rumors and lies essentially when the way that this actually happened is fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah, and that uh, that kind of brings us right into uh, the George Jones uh, part of season two. Um, and you know, you had given some, some trigger warnings on some of those episodes. And of course, you know, me being, uh, you know, oh, trigger warning, come on, I don't need your trigger warning. I, you know, I, I know how fun it is to get drunk and, uh, listen to George Jones and think about him getting drunk. Um, and, uh, but it turned out to be, you know, some of those episodes that they were emotionally draining, um, I didn't talking about kind of seeing things in a new light. Um, I didn't see George Jones, the, you know, the country singer who was, uh, you know, kind of like a noble, uh, a noble drunk. You know, uh, I, I think that's at least a vision I've always had it in my head, uh, you know, guy at the bar doing as many shots as he can. There's like a nobility or, um, a glamour about that. Um, and you know, there wasn't really a lot of glamour and, and nobility, at least to, uh, to that part of the story. And well, I think the question that I have for you before we kind of get into the, uh, to the George and Tammy show, uh, did, did it, did it take a toll on you to get into that story? Because I'm as a listener, it, it did me, it was, it was pretty heavy. Oh yeah, man. Um, even j just that, just doing that 
work by itself was pretty awful. Um, but then also that at the time that I was doing it, uh, the world was insane. I don't know if you ever heard about like the stuff that was happening in Nashville with, um, it was ostensibly about black lives matter protests, but then all of these other people came in from out of town and like, you know, bad faith actors and all that shit. They burned down our courthouse. Right. Yeah. And then there was a, a someone, some psycho blew up an RV downtown. I felt the shock wave from that, from where I live across the river in East Nashville. I felt that happen. Um, the part of town that I live in historically has been one of the most dangerous parts of Nashville. And so it's, it's gone now. They, uh, demoed it and put two tall skinnies up on the lot. But in my neighborhood, the drug house was literally across the street from me. So I, I, I heard gunshots every day and, you know, the courthouse is on fire, terrorists are bombing the city, gunshots. It was like living in a war zone. And I was like, and I, I listen to music on headphones, you know, so it's my job to listen to music and write about music. But I'm like, I don't want to put headphones on because I need to know if the fucking end of the world starts happening outside, you know. And so it was emotionally draining. And then all that other stuff was happening. And but but that's the job. And that it was really important to me because, again, there have been a lot of books written about George Jones, like he's one of probably fewer than 10 country artists ever who's had more than one book written about him. And I think there are like five or six at this point. And again, not to insult those who took a swing at it before, but if I felt like any of those books had gotten it right, I wouldn't have done this, you know? And it was really important to me because George Jones is really important to me. He, like him as a human and him as an artist is, has been really important to me my entire life. And uh, he was around when I was a kid, like him and my father were on the same label, had the same producer recorded together. Like I was around him. I knew what, I know what he was like, you know? And it's, it, it's ultimately a horror story uh, at the end of the day. It's just sort of, it, it starts bad and it just gets worse and it just keeps getting worse. And then with his story, there's a little bit of, of a little bit of sunshine at the end. You know, he, he got to have some happiness at the end of his life. And then Tammy's, it starts bad. It just gets worse and it never gets better. And what is, what is more terrifying than that? You know? So like I had a few sort of touch touchstone influences in mind the whole time I was working on season two. One of them, which I've talked about a lot, was Moby Dick. Um, but then the other ones were mostly horror fiction, like uh, Mark Z. Danielewski's House of Leaves and um, the, the Twin Peaks, the return to Twin Peaks that David Lynch did a few years ago. And just like miserably bleak stuff. And that was kind of... That's the only way that you can 
honestly tell the George Jones story, in my opinion, is if you are willing to scare the shit out of people. Like, it's not funny. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me to, and want to talk about that Mike Judge TV show that somehow makes a full schizophrenic break something that people laugh at. And yeah, it's it's just, that's... Not only is that like very disrespectful, I think it's fucking dangerous. I think it is dangerous to put the idea in people's minds that this was all just a good time and that you you should you should give it a shot, you know, do a bunch of cocaine, drink three bottles of whiskey a day, and you know you'll be a legend and because that's not the way that that goes for anyone who's not George Jones, you know yeah, for sure. and another question kind of on that. We're, when you, uh, I don't know how far uh, behind the curtain you want to get, but like, you know, when you were doing the George Jones research and stuff, um, or on anybody really, but uh, particularly George Jones, like, do you, in a way, you're kind of getting into their mindset, right? Uh, or kind of understanding, I would guess, a little bit how they think, uh, things like that. Were you... I don't want to say like a kind of a method actor kind of, but you know, did George Jones kind of get into you? Did any of that darkness kind of seep in? If that makes any sense. Well, like I didn't start doing cocaine again, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you, but I think kind of anyone who really goes through a George Jones phase has done that, you know, like if you've ever spent months of your life listening to pretty much only George Jones, you get it, man. <laughs> you know how it feels, well, you know, unless you're just listening to fucking white lightning on repeat. But if you're getting into the real stuff, like what he would have called the real stuff, it's going to rip your heart out. And yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of nights. So, cause all that shit was happening I was staying up at night and sleeping during the day. You know, I figured like, okay, if anything really bad and unexpected happens in my neighborhood, it'll probably be at night. So I was staying up at night and like working from, like I would wake up at like 8 p.m., 7, 8 p.m. around the time it got dark and just work through into the morning. So it was a lot of nights just alone listening to George Jones. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess it's possible to that people have done that and just you know feel sad about a romantic relationship or something. So I guess maybe knowing the details of his life forwards and backwards uh, might have made it a little worse. You know, knowing the exact pain that he was putting in there, not just pain in general. But yeah, it's uh, it definitely felt like going through something, you know, and it was, uh, I, I remember like I would go, I would see some friends every now and then and they'd be like, how's it going? And I'd be like, honestly, not great, man. Like I, I don't feel great. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. So I would be, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up uh, the Showtime series. I'll just tell people, uh, cause I know you've, uh, you've been with me for a while now. They can see on YouTube. Um, you reviewed every episode. Um, I watched it. I was very, um, excited about it because it came on the heels of cocaine and rhinestone season two. Um, as far as your reviews of each episode, uh, I, I generally just 
spent my whole time like nodding, you know, very heavily, uh, just because everything you said was, was spot on, uh, just kind of a, a couple of things really quick. And then you can say anything you want to on this, but uh, the one, the one thing where I literally thought, uh, that like in my mind at my kitchen table, I thought if Tyler Mahanko is watching this, his head is going to explode. And that was the scene where Tammy comes in and basically ensures that George Jones uh, gets through. He stopped loving her today. Uh, she, she basically, you know, comes in and makes that song. That, that was the one where I thought, oh, my goodness, um, th- this is this just seems, you know, not just fit. It seems insane to me. Uh, and the but my biggest issue um, and I, I think you had this too, was at the crux of this story, uh, the crux of it is that George Jones was the greatest country singer uh, of all time. He was extremely special. And the only way you can get that in my mind is to, when the audience is introduced to George Jones, they need to hear George Jones sing. Um and to me, it was, you know, no disrespect to Michael Shannon, you know, great actor. Um, but, but to me, that, that was the kind of the, one of the fundamental flaws was if we don't know that this guy isn't just some country singer, this guy is George Jones. If we don't know that and hear that, you know, kind of what are we doing here? So I'll, I'll let you kind of go now if you have anything you want to. Yeah, there's just no way you can. There's no way you can go with that. Uh, you know the. Um, it's, <laughs> I, my biggest problem with the whole thing was just how boring it was. You know, they made all these changes to what really happened, and it made it less interesting. Like, uh, kind of like what we were talking about. It's not they didn't make up stuff that was like huge fireworks stuff they got rid of all the huge fireworks stuff and made the story boring and the thing that really bothered me the most about um all the stuff that they changed particularly uh the scene that you mentioned which is just complete nonsense the idea that tammy Wynette had to go in the studio for george to be able to record that song um, then the dude who wrote the show gives some interview where he talks and he was addressing the final episode where they act like uh, George and Tammy like made out with each other at, after he was already married to Nancy, which that did not happen. And uh, like if you go look at pictures of Tammy Wynette on that tour, she's like carrying an oxygen tank around and an IV all everywhere she's got to go. Like she was she wasn't getting frisky, you know. And, but, but then the writer of the show gives some interview to Variety or somewhere where he says, well, yeah, cause you don't want to make up something that's not true. And we did so many interviews and turns out, pe- turns out people said that they were hooking up on that tour. It's like, oh, did people say that Donald Trump? Like, come on, man. Many people are saying, and it, it so it's just like, dude, if, if you want to make up some bullshit, make up some bullshit, but at least stand by it like yeah i made up some bullshit fuck you like don't act like it's what really happened yeah people say 
it's got like, you know, just, they, yeah. they, they, they say and it's so uh, ins- it's so insulting too it's like dude do you think that every do you think that you're just telling a story to a bunch of dumbasses who cannot possibly find out the truth if they want to it's just yeah a lot of lot of issues with that show i mean like you said i said everything i can say in public in those youtube reviews um i am still talking to lawyers about uh suing them for plagiarism yeah because they they straight out some of the words they were putting out there were your words they thought they weren't they were quotes from you right uh th- there's one scene specifically that is just straight up a paragraph of my original sentences i know what they thought they were doing in a previous episode they have michael shannon as george jones He's he's saying a quote that I kind of made a big deal out of, but it's something that George Jones actually said. So yeah, they probably got it from me, but it's not my original writing. So whatever, you know, I would would never have even said anything about that in public had that been the only thing that happened. But then later, they have Michael Shannon as George Jones saying stuff that is my original sentences, and I know that they thought that they were just taking another George Jones quote from me, but it was me describing a George Jones interview, and I'm doing it in way different language than what George Jones actually used, and introducing concepts to it that were informed by the rest of the story of his life, not his his actual answer is not in the scene. Like they don't use any part of his quote. They just verbatim take me describing George Jones talking, which that is textbook plagiarism. Um, so is, is that something that you kind of think about as, because I can, I can imagine um, that the podcast has driven, you know, in the mainstream more interest in, you know, 20th century country music. Um, is that something that you're kind of aware of or thinking that, you know, this, this isn't going to be the last time that this could happen. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, that's exactly why I have to, you know, do everything that I can legally. I, I, this, and I mean, I, I am willing to spend probably too much money to make sure that everyone understands they can't do this to me, you know? And so like Ethan Hawke is trying to get a Leuven Brothers movie made. It'll be a miracle if that ever actually happens. But, and not to say that he would, but I need to make a hundred percent sure that they know for a fact that they can't just take my stuff because also I'm, I'm writing this stuff. It's my, I own it. So like I have the option to go sell it and make it into a TV show if I want to someday. And it it makes it pretty impossible to do that when someone else has already done it recently, you know, like because they made this terrible George and Tammy show makes it incredibly unlikely that I will have an opportunity to ever make a George Jones and Tammy Wynette TV show. And the fact that they also stole from me in order to make their terrible show is, it's, I mean, it's 
potentially damaging to my reputation as well because of how many people assume because of the timing of this, there are a lot of people who assume that I had something to do with this show. Like, oh, they must have hired him as a consultant or whatever. And of course, there's no good reason to think that, but that doesn't stop people from thinking that. So them blurring the lines between my work and theirs by plagiarizing from me just feeds right into that. And that's my whole reputation. And that's that's everything for me. Like I'm a completely independent creative artist. I can't do this if people don't trust me. And I don't expect that people will trust me if they think that I'm responsible for a TV show like that. Yeah. And I can, I can tell you just in, you know, uh, our uh, previous conversations I've had with you, uh, when you just use the word that you would spend uh, probably too much money uh, because, you know, I remember back, uh, this was, I guess, season one, like you were uh, taking meetings with people. I, I, it's very, you, I would say that you are much more protective of this work, maybe even than the average person. I don't know if that would, if you get what I'm saying, like you are extremely protective of this. Work. I think you would, said something at one time that if somebody offered you like a million dollars, you would tell them to fuck off. Um, yeah, I would, I would never sell it. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of press around season two and the guy who wrote the Washington Post article, Jeff Edgers, he couldn't wrap his head around that. It was kind of a funny thing. He kept like going back to it. Like, really? There's not any amount of money? And I was like, no, dude. Like, <laughs> Because the only reason someone would give me that much money is if they expect to get more than that on the other end of this thing. So A, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life anyways. So if it's if, if it ever is going to become that valuable, I'll just hang on to it and I'll be the one that gets that much money on the end of it. But B, once someone has that much money invested in it, which I don't, I have not invested a million dollars in this because I didn't buy it from some guy who started it as a project out of his house. But once someone has invested a million dollars in it, they're on a timetable. Like they want to get that money back sooner than later. And it takes me a while to do this. So it, it doesn't matter what words are in the contract. It doesn't matter how much of that million dollars I'm willing to spend on a lawyer to hold, to see if I can get that contract to hold up. They've got more, if they've got enough to give me a million dollars, they've got enough to pay a lawyer to render that contract nonsense, just senseless. And they'll get someone else to do this. Like they'll, they own the name. They'll just have someone churn out, you know, a season on Johnny Cash, a season on Patsy Cline, get someone with a much better speaking voice than mine to read it. And they're off to the races, you know, they don't need me. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it completely. Um, so uh, coming next, I don't think we've talked about, and again, I appreciate your time. I'm not going to keep you more than another five or 10 minutes. Um, so uh, season three, I'm assuming you're working on, but then the, the book, we haven't really talked about the uh, the books, which I'm really, really excited about. And I think that's what kind of circles back a little bit to, about how this is going to be, uh, you know, a part of, uh, you know, the canon, the, the history of uh, country music. Uh, what, what are your kind of expectations for the book? Because just for, for me, that makes it um, 
because you had talked about in your in your video that you know this isn't going to change the podcast. The podcast is the medium, but book a book does seem a little weightier, if that's the right word. You know what I mean. So what are you what are your kind of thoughts on the book and or the books and kind of how that's going to go? Well, the um, the first one is essentially uh, just season two, like because to me. The George Jones story with the Tammy Wynette story, that is a lot of what you need to know about all of country music in general. You know, it co- it covers a lot of ground. And then especially once you get into um, like the, the, the I, I, I got to come up with a good thing to call like the intro stuff. I just can't keep calling the intros forever. But like the other history around it, you know, I think that... Um, that covers a lot of just the culture of what became the culture of country music. And I, I it's sort of, I, it's, it's almost like a Rosetta Stone kind of a thing where like this one story touches everything else that you need to know, at least about the 20th century country music as it was. Um, and then, you know, it's it's not going to be just the transcripts, you know, like a, a lot of the sentences are going to be the same, but it it will be, you know, reworked to make sense in the medium of a book. Um, but I think the, the biggest difference between a, a book and the podcast, obviously, is um, the, getting rid of the audio. And that means that there's not music clips, you know, there. So I'm still talking about songs. And if someone wants to go and spend their time to find that song and listen to that song, then they can. But what it really does, to what I'm finding that it does as I'm working on it, because that's part of what I've been doing, um, it kind of pulls a lot of things into focus uh, story-wise, you know, because it, it, it's not a very easy thing to um, hit people with two hours of stories and then also mix in music and also mix in here's how the whole industry works. And, you know, that ta- that takes a ton of work to make that happen in an audio medium. And I think in a lot of ways, the way that I write kind of even makes more sense as a book. Um, So yeah, I, and I'll, I intend to be very clear about this with people. You know, the last thing I want is for anyone to think that they're like getting new stuff. You know, it's, it's a book adaptation of the podcast. And I, hope that some people who do listen to the podcast want to get the book too but ultimately i'm doing this to try to reach all because most people don't listen to podcasts still you know and i i think that working with simon and schuster on it sort of says something about this story to people who may otherwise think they don't care, you know, it's not, it's not, a it's not a smaller publishing house that mostly does books on music, doing a book about music. This is like one of the big ones, you know, so them sort of putting their seal of approval on it, I think will say something that recommends it to a lot of folks who probably 
do not care yet. You know, I I think it's a chance to reach new people. And then also um, as a reference tool, you know, that like this can go in libraries, this can go in, like I have kids tell me that their professors or college professors are assigning the podcast as homework already. So yeah, like maybe someone can teach from this or use it, put it in their library at least, you know, like it's there and it's got a lot of information in it. That's not just George Jones and Tammy Wynette autobiography stuff. So yeah, it's, um, it's not something I ever really thought was going to happen. Uh, I never, you know, I mean, I've, I've been a writer my whole life, just privately. It's how I process things and work things out, you know, notebooks full of stuff, but I never even really thought about showing any of that stuff to anyone or publishing it or anything. So I certainly never thought I was going to be a published author. It's, a uh, it's new still. I'm definitely not used to it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I get it. And just as, you know, from the standpoint of a fan of the podcast, for me, um, it, it's all, I tend to, I enjoy the, the podcast and uh, the um, uh, the audio stuff, but I tend to retain more information. And, you know, I think a lot of people, like some people are um, uh, retain information more, you know, through audio and some through reading. Uh, I tend to retain more in reading. So I, I think that's a, that's one of the big reasons that I'm excited about it because, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of episodes, um, you know, multiple times, but it's, it's still, it's a different, different style of learning retention that, that people have. So like, I, I think it's going to be really good for that aspect of, for just from my personal perspective. Yeah. I think it's going to uh, help people understand a lot of the connections uh, some folks were confused about you know like the bullfighting stuff specifically i think that uh, a lot of those connections will be much easier to to draw right on the page because it's also you can you can flip back and forth through a book so much easier than trying to scrub through a podcast you know and i don't do timestamps because that's just extra work on top of everything else that i am already doing so yeah like if you if you didn't or if you like tuned out like you're washing the dishes and something makes a noise and you don't hear a sentence or whatever else you know but with a book, you're you're either there or you're not. You know, with a podcast, there's so many ways you can be distracted and miss something that was a very important thing that you shouldn't have missed if you want everything to be brought together in a nice little nice little package for you. So yeah, I think that in a lot of ways it makes more sense as a book. But to repeat what you said that I've already said, the podcast will always be the first priority. Like that's that's what made it possible for this to become my life's work. So I'm not going to ever turn my back on that or, you know, make anything else more important than that. Yeah. So, uh, kind of, I guess, last question, um, what's, what's going to come first, uh, season three going to come first or is book one going to come first as far as drop dates you have any, is there anything that, uh, I know you get all the time, you know, when this season, uh, whatever going to drop and you always say, well, it'll, it'll drop when I'm done with it. Uh, but you have any, uh, any teasers or any kind of idea of, you know, what we're, what we're going to look at, uh, what we're going to see from you first and then next, et cetera. 
I don't have a real solid timeline in place. I can say that I would expect the book to come out before season three. Um, I am not ready to talk about this other thing yet, but there is a chance that I will be able to work something out to sort of come out with maybe like an in-between seasons bit of content that uh, it would be cool if I could coordinate it to where it, it all kind of happens at the same time. Like maybe the book and maybe this other thing could happen at the same time. Um, but yeah, other than that, like I'm still in the part of just reading a ton of books for season three. So it's still pretty early days as far as that goes. I'd wouldn't even be able to guess at how long it's going to take, which that's, that's like why I tell people it'll be done when it's done is because I literally don't know. It's not like I'm just keeping secrets over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Well, listen, uh, I'm going to let you go. Uh, we've ran um, uh, way longer than, uh, uh, than I promised you we would, but I, I definitely appreciate, uh, appreciate you taking the time. I hope everybody checks out cocaine and rhinestones. I um, hope everybody checks out the book. And of course, you're on Twitter uh, at Tyler Mayhanko and um, and the podcast, Your Favorite Band Sucks. And if you think yours doesn't, you may be surprised uh, once you once you <laughs> listen, once you listen to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, man. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate your time. Thanks for talking to me. All right. Bye bye.